listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I am a brand and marketing strategist, and this podcast is all about telling the story of private business. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, my guest is Terry Galanis Jr. He's the president and CEO of a company called Ceiling Devices, and uh, they have an amazing story that I'm really excited to hear. So, Terry, welcome to The Currency. Thank you, Mike. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that you have joined me. You are hosting today at the Ceiling Devices <laughs> offices. It's uh, really impressive. So I'm impressed because you, you, we did a little bit of a tour. I got to meet your father, who is here at the office. He's 101 years old. Yes, 101. Oh, my goodness. And, and lucid and full of pep. <laughs> I, uh, we should all be so lucky. But um, the, the reason I, I, you know, I'm looking at the facilities here. I'm looking at the size of the company. I mean, it's huge. You've got offices in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, Buffalo, New York, Lancaster area of New York right now, Rochester, New York, Syracuse. I know that this company started in the 60s at a kitchen table. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm really curious to hear the story. (laughs) Do you mind just telling us a little bit first of like, what is Ceiling Devices? What do you do? And then we'll get a little bit into the history of of the company. Ceiling Ceiling Devices is a uh, manufacturer and distributor of gaskets and seals. And we have been in business since 1963. Okay. Uh, my father started the business um, after World War II. My father came back, and my mother inherited, I think, $2,500, and my father was able to buy a car. Okay. Well, in those days, if you had a car, you're a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to work for the Gates Rubber Company out of Denver. And he sold V-belts and things like that to many of the industries here in the Buffalo area. Okay. And he had the V-belt contract for Chevy Tonawanda, where they were producing engines and stuff like that. So uh, then he worked in 1951, he worked for a company that made it braided packing and did gaskets and stuff like that. And he had the territory here in uh, western New York. <clears throat> so he made a lot of friends back from the 50s, and uh, in uh, 1957, uh, they shipped us, or 1954, they shipped us off to uh, Chicago, and my father became the sales manager, uh, the salesman for the all of the Midwest. He called on Caterpillar and people like that. Okay. He built a real nice territory. So how, old, how old would you have been at the time? Uh, about 10 years old. Okay, all About right. 10 years old. And uh, then in 1956, Seven, we were brought back to Buffalo. My father became the sales manager of the company. And there were six people trying to sell the products we sell today all over the country. Wow. So my father said, this is not a good idea. We should be setting up distributors and fabricators that can take our product and put more feet on the street and cover more customers. So he came back to Buffalo and started writing a catalog and started signing up distributors. And he signed up three, and they bought the initial inventory of $2,500 worth of braided packing to sell to their customer base. Now, what is braided packing? Braided packing is a, uh, a braided jute material or Teflon material okay. that's used in pumps, rotating pumps, to control the leakage out of pumps. Okay. And you can tighten it and loosen it. It eventually wears out and you have to replace sure. it. Sure. So it's a good thing. 
Uh, it's an old technology now. They have mechanical seals, which nobody sells braided packing anymore. Well, and when you said jute, jute's a plant. That's a plant yeah. base. Like a, yeah. They make like rugs and stuff out of yeah. jute. Yeah. And they would lubricate the fibers. Wow. And uh, they had a little packing gland on them that you could tighten it and could control the leakage. The leakage lubricated the, the packing, so <laughs> it didn't wear too much on the shafts okay. and stuff like that. But now that's old technology sure, and uh, sure. stuff. It's the old, like, bubby, buggy whip and yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff like that. So anyway, he came back to Buffalo, and he worked with three distributors around the country. And they bought the $2,500 worth of inventory. In 1960 was a recession. Okay. And uh, he was only growing the business 15% a year. And that wasn't good enough for the president of the company. That's actually not bad growth. Not bad during a recession year. <laughs> so by 1963, we had still been growing at that He was still growing at that kind of pace, and it wasn't good enough for the president. So he kind of encouraged my father to go off and start his own business because he knew about this distribution business that he'd been setting up distributors for. So at that time, a company called Parker Hannafin, yeah, or the Parker Seal Group, was trying to work with the company that my father worked for. They didn't like the president of the company, but they liked my father. Interesting. And my father told them, you have a very large void of a distributor in this area. And if I get canned, I would like you to consider me for the job. But I don't have any money. <laughs> so anyway, the regional sales manager said, I'll tell you right now, Terry, you have it. You have a distributorship. So uh, we bought uh, $157 worth of O-rings and uh, started a little business in our garage. The family room became the office. Okay. My mother, who really was a housewife, uh, went to school to take some typing. Okay. And my father would go on the road and sell the products, the O-rings that we had. How big are these O-rings, just for the listener? Could be anywhere from real tiny quarter inch to 24 inches. So it's smaller, like go over a pinky finger to yeah, two sure. feet in diameter. Yeah. And what are they used for typically? Uh, sealing uh, two glands together, okay. a perfect seal. Okay. Uh, O-ring rubber, the right compounds have a rebound factor where the, you can squeeze them to a certain tight and they'll push back and, okay. and create a seal. Uh, Moog and Easterar was our first customer, okay. buying O-rings and stuff like that. So, uh, But there's uh, thousands of different compounds of O-rings. Some will take oil, some will swell in oil, some are better in uh, ultraviolet light, okay. some are better in certain fluids. Sure. So there's a Knowing the O-ring business and knowing the compounds is very important for aerospace and people. Well, if, you know, listeners that are, you know, my age in their 50s or, or uh, older will remember the O-ring fiasco with the challenge. Was it the Challenger? The, yeah, the shuttle. The shuttle. shuttle. The, the, yeah. They blamed the failure on an O-ring, I think, at one point. I don't know if that's accurate or not. but Well, what happened is uh, rubber at low temperatures kinds, tends to... Uh, uh, what do you call it? You uh, tends to uh, in, uh, adhere itself to metal. Okay. And the O-ring that they used was only a 500 degree temperature O-ring. They're burning 6,000 degree fuel oh, through gosh. that O-ring. Yeah. And it was cold in Florida, 
and that O-ring had adhered to okay. the metal, and then when the rocket fired and heated up, it tore away from the metal. Right. Well, I bring and, that up to say, you know, it's such a seemingly inconsequential, oh, it's a little yeah. you know, piece of rubber, like you would, you know, you yeah. You get 10 in a plastic bag for five bucks. You don't think twice about it, right? <laughs> like I go to the hardware store. Yeah. But critical to process. Crucial. Very critical. Yeah. Very critical. Uh, that O-ring was 24 inches in diameter. Okay. But only a quarter inch cross section. So it was a very small O-ring. Okay. And the design of those uh, sections were supposed to tighten as the rocket fired and heated up. Okay. Unfortunately, they loosened up. Sure, they melted probably if they weren't. Yeah, rated. so the every time they fired that rocket, and they had uh, tests on this, the O ring had burned a little more each time. Uh. So they knew they had a problem. And this was just the perfect storm with the cold temperatures and stuff like that. Sure. And that condition. Now, your firm wasn't involved with this. It, no. Yeah, I mean, you know about it because you're in the industry. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Parker Hannafin, Parker Seal Company, did make the O-rings. Oh, they did. Wow. And they that did. was the first company that your father exactly. got set up with. Yeah. And I we still are that. today. We're still one of the largest distributors. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I took you off track there, but I wanted the listeners to be able to understand, like, these O-rings. Oh, very critical. They're critical. You kind of very, don't think about critical. them and go, oh, but yeah. they matter. Especially when uh, O-rings are are uh, swelling, when they shouldn't be swelling because yeah. they, they move through ports and they mm-hmm. get cut off. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of problems with So there's a high degree of uh, engineering, material science that has to go behind these things. Absolutely. And when you're asked to help specify they're probably looking to your firm quite uh, significantly, whoever's engineering something, yeah. for that expertise to advise them, like what materials, right. what design. And actually the quality and the traceability is so important. Okay. Batch numbers. Sure. Okay. Because uh, O-rings are round and black. Yeah, they all look And they all look the same. Similar, yeah, yeah. Uh, we test them for specific gravity. Okay. We test them for uh, tensile strength and uh, elongation, things like that. And we do that to make sure there's no failures. Gotcha. And uh, that testing is part of our uh, quality program. Sure. Which allows us to supply O-rings to the aerospace industry. And we, we are checked constantly mm. uh, to, for the accreditation on our AS9100 uh, aerospace <laughs> quality rating. So we pay good money for, uh, for the, the sure ability to do, do that. Well, I took you off track. You brought up aerospace. You're talking about the growth of the company and the mm-hmm. industries you're getting into. And then I did just kind of made me go to the space shuttle. But please continue as far as the story of, yeah. of the company. Well, so my father got this franchise for $157. Our family room became an office. Okay. We put two desks in there. The garage became the warehouse. And uh, we went to Sears and bought two canned goods shelves and put them together and 157 Keep your inventory. Yeah, $157 <laughs> of O-ring. It doesn't take too much space up. Yeah. But uh, at that time, there was a rubber called Viton. Viton rubber was coming out in the 60s. Okay. This was 1963 when we started the company. Okay. And Viton rubber was good for acid uh, and things like that to work in those. It wouldn't swell. It wouldn't attack it. So it was okay with caustic environments. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So uh, we started buying those, uh, and uh, customers would call looking for it. And they say, oh, yeah, we got those in stock. And, you know, maybe we had one or two. <laughs> <laughs> and hope they didn't order any more, and we'll, we'll buy some more later. And uh, it was fine because 
uh, as we started to grow, inventory started to grow. Sure. So my father would have to go to the bank. Yeah. And borrow twenty thousand dollars, and you have to wait. Inventory, to, yeah, yeah. And, and this uh, is also before the days of uh, FedEx. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you know, you could call me. Hey, Mike, do you have what? Oh, yeah, I can get it to you tomorrow, Terry. And yeah, I can have FedEx drop ship it. <laughs> sure. I don't even have to touch it next day. Yeah, that didn't exist. Yeah, not at all. Uh, so when we we would ship uh, by the post office. So every day at five o'clock, uh, we had a little company car. It was a little station wagon. Little uh, Chrysler Valiant station okay. wagon, and I would drive these packages, and maybe four or five, even ten, if we were good. I'd take them to the post office in Town Line, New York, and Mr. Peter Becker was the postmaster. He probably knew you quite well after a Absolutely, while. Absolutely, you know, and he knew that we were getting busier as more packages came sure. and stuff like that. So it was good. So Terry, this is uh, this is a classic American story, you know, family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Changes. It wasn't like your. Maybe your father always wanted to be an entrepreneur. He, uh, clearly, he was entrepreneurial. If he, oh, even absolutely. if he had a sales yeah. job, he had to be kind of entrepreneurial to do yeah. sales because you lived. You only ate what you killed. They weren't probably giving him a hundred thousand dollar check and say do the best. If no. he didn't sell something, he wasn't paying the bills. Exactly. Then he kind of goes into this opportunity where he can uh, buy some stuff from Parker Hannafin and resell it, and he's got this distribution that he set up. How does uh? Uh, I, I, maybe let me ask this question: Like, how large is the company now? I know you published some statistics yeah. on your mm-hmm. website, so I'm not asking yeah. anything that's too secret here. Well, my father was 45 when he started the company. Okay, and he didn't want to. He got a terrible ulcer working in his other company, uh, and he said, "I would never make anybody work under the pressure that I did." Okay, so he wanted a small company, three to five people. Okay. Maybe sell half a million dollars a year of O-rings okay. across the Okay, feed the, the family. State. No, yeah. not too much stress. And, uh, you know, have a little storefront somewhere. Sure. Well. That's the American dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Today, our sales, we just finished our year, is about $77 million. And we have uh, uh, 225 employees. Okay. A lot of whom have been here 30 years or more. Wow. Uh, and we've experienced in the last two years uh, tremendous growth, about 16 to 17% a year. Wow. Uh, fortunately, we, we have built our infrastructure to handle uh, a lot of business as we go forward. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, as we grow larger and larger, our reputation gets stronger and stronger. Today, we do business in all 50 states. Okay. We have national franchises for some other products. Uh, we ship a lot to around the, around the world. Okay, so you're we, doing international business as yeah. well. We even sell gaskets into China. Look at that. Yeah, gas meter gaskets into China. Wow. And now that's going to be in Mexico, but it's one of the things that we do. Well, my question around... Um you know, my initial question, we'll get to that in a minute, was how do you go from a kitchen table to $77 million in sales? We'll talk about that in a second. But I am curious, um, as you're talking about the company growing more so even now, I know there's been a bump since President Trump took office. There's been a bump in the economy. Yeah. I know things are a little rocky. Like, you know, we're looking at the stock market today. It's down. But, it, like, overall, things have been looking better. Yeah. But manufacturing still in the U.S. has not had a, a complete comeback, and you're selling into an industrial market, and you're in the northeast of the U.S. And I've, 
I've covered the Northeast as a young sales guy. It's old yeah. and rusty. Oh, and it's a rust belt for sure. So I'm curious, like, what's driving the sales for you? Uh, you know, if you're telling me we've got the software that, that took off and yeah. we're doing all this technology, yeah. high tech, but you're selling more of a low technology, older technology, analog into a very mature market. How you doing it? What's what's driving the sales? Well, it, uh, newer products to replace older products. Okay. We talked about braided packing. Yep. There was a tremendous amount of paper industry in, in New England and uh, New York State area. Okay. Especially in the Syracuse area, you had some very good paper mills and stuff. Watertown, New York. Yep. Had My tremendous. mom's from Watertown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That business dried up. Okay. I mean, so you got rid of that product. And other other products came in, more aerospace. Okay. We had to develop a product line to meet the other people. Uh, a lot of the business that we have is maintenance business. People that run process lines, you know, if it goes down, they lose $20,000 an hour mm. because of a 20-cent gasket or something that they have to replace. Sure. So it's a service business. So you make a reputation by being able to get anybody anything they want 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we built a nice reputation on that because we still have chemical plants here in Niagara Falls that we do a lot of business with and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to keep looking for new business all the time. You know, I always thought you're going to, if you want to grow 25, 20, say 15%, you really have to grow 25 sure. because you're going to lose 10% a year yeah. through attrition yeah. and things like that and uh, price cutting, whatever. You're not always going to have the same business you had the year before. So it sounds like, um, I just reflect back to make sure I'm understanding correctly, the, the growth, uh, especially the more recent growth, has just been always looking for new markets. New I'll market. say opportunistic. You're looking yeah. for new ways that your technology can be applied, yeah. looking for new applications, new industries, uh, as opposed to just staying in your lane saying, well, we've always worked with the uh, chemical factories yeah. and that's where we just play. Yeah. Now, what you always have to do is invest in inventory, invest in new products, invest in equipment mm -hmm. to do what you have to do faster and easier. Sure. You have to give everybody a raise every year, which I've, we've always given everybody a raise every year, whether we could afford it or not. Okay. Uh, but fortunately, we could. Uh, we always have good health care. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a fine reputation uh, that brings in. But, you know, a lot of your suppliers will tell you where to go for business also. Really? Uh We've had a lot of suppliers come to us and said, you know, we got a distributor in this area, but they don't pay their bills. <laughs> yeah. We've yeah. always paid them on time with a discount. Okay. So, you know, we'd rather have you have the business than the other guy because you'll pay us. Sure. So we, we have gotten a few counts like that. But one of the things that we have with some of our national lines that we are a national distributor, we do the engineering for that product line. Mm -hmm. And they'll come to us and say, what else do you sell? So that gives us an opportunity to sell the rest of our product line. Yeah. You know, most uh, manu most uh, customers today want to consolidate their their vendor yep. base. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So the more offerings you can give. In our business, a lot of people are just a distributor, and a lot of people are just a gasket manufacturer. Yeah. We do both. You're doing both. Yeah, so we can supply the uh, the industry with whatever they want. And we have the finest quality of manufacturers so that we support, we uh, distribute for. 
or you're right, you distribute. I was going to say, as I'm listening to you, um, from my perspective as a marketing branding guy, sure. mm-hmm. I always say the experience is the product. Meaning a lot of times people are, they're really proud of the product. We've got the best engineering, best manufacturing, but they're really difficult to work with. They're surly, they're rude, their people don't go the extra mile, you know, that kind of thing. I don't care how good the product is. If it's painful when I buy it, I'm looking for someone else. Because at the end of the day, what I'm really buying is the experience. Uh, To me, like a good product is table stakes. If you don't have a good product, you're not even, you can't sit at the table. So what I'm hearing from you really is you're creating an experience for your customers that nobody else can beat. And so yeah. they're saying, I like this experience so much. What else can I buy from you? What else do you have for me? <laughs> exactly. And you're, even your suppliers are saying that I like the experience of having you as my uh, distribution network. Yeah. Like, you know, I'd like to send you, can you, can you take care of this territory? <laughs> is that accurate? Oh, yeah. I always thought that people like to buy things from nice people. Yeah, people, they, we like to do business with people yeah. we like. Right. I had a customer who once uh, was a very good friend of mine, but he said, I want to talk to this girl in your office only. Okay. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can, you make sure, can you make sure that she uh, takes care of me all the time? I said, sure. I got all the business. And <laughs> she's still here. Okay. Unfortunately, he's passed on. But, uh-huh. uh, you know, I learned a lot by by listening to just listening to the customers, sure, finding out what they want. It's simple. Sure, basic relationships are simple, and yeah. uh, it's one of those things that you, you it's a lot of common sense. Well, before we sat down to record this, you, uh, it was really lovely. You brought me, and I got to sit with your father, and we had a cup yeah. of coffee together. I was struck by the conversations around relationships. I mean, your dad's 101. He started this business in his 40s. Yeah. And you guys were kind of going through these different, hey, remember Charlie, the accountant? And <laughs> yeah. this guy, I mean, there's just so many relationships. And your father was saying, he goes, like, there's, there's just so many, so many things to remember in, in, oh. in my life. And I was struck by the, the focus on the people. Because oh, yeah. some people will talk about, well, I was really proud when I accomplished this. And remember yeah. when we bought that, like, kind of... Yeah. You guys were talking about the people. Yeah, it's all about the people. It's all about people. You know, you can give direction, but you have to have execution by people that that work with you. Mm -hmm. One of of the nicest things about it is uh, this main plant that we have. You know, everybody thought we'd put an addition on because we knew we were going to grow. And everybody say, what are they spending all that money on for this work? We were, you know, why are they doing it? It's because you have to grow. Yeah. Finally, after about the third edition, somebody says, did anybody thank you for putting this edition on? Because <laughs> we're pretty crowded in here, yeah, you know? Yeah, And uh, so it's sometimes hard to make people understand what you have to do to keep the business going. Sure. You know, basically, when people come to work for you, I tell them, you, you've got to rely on us for your livelihood. If you put a good day's work, we're going to keep you working with us. Even if it slows down or not, we'll have you sweep the floor or whatever, because in a couple months, it's going to come back yeah. and we're going to need you. And uh, so it's worth us being a privately held company to not worry about everyday profits and worry about Those the long term returns. Yeah. yeah. Terry, what is it about uh, your business or your family? Like what what is it that informs that commitment to the people? Is this, Was your family just always like that? Or did you just have a family that's like, hey, we're just loyal people? Did you have some experience where you you had to learn a hard lesson? What is it that that drives that? 
You know, I think it's always been nobody's better than anybody else. I mean, uh, humility. You know, yeah, I mean, we all pull our pants up the same way every sure. morning, as sure. they say. And, you know, just because you have a different job doesn't mean your job isn't more important than anybody, as important as anybody else's. Yeah. And it's treating people. I had, it was a very nice experience I had one time. Um, a fellow who worked at a big union company here in Buffalo. Okay. Got laid off. Came to work for us. And they were paying higher wages. But he came to work for us. For five years, and he loves it here. He loved. It. He's finally retired from here, okay. but he loved it here. And they called him back after he'd been here. So this was on a Thursday. I went out and I talked to the gentleman, and I said, uh, "Bob, I mean, you're terrific here, but I know you've got an opportunity to go back, and I want you to know if that doesn't work out, come right back here." Okay. So that was on a Thursday. I went out of town on Friday, came back. Monday night, I walked out of here at 6 o'clock, and it was a summer night. And I looked down, and he was down at a picnic table out back, you know, having his break. Okay. So I went down to him, and he said, what happened? He said, well, I'll tell you what, because he told me it was going to be bittersweet if he left. He said, I thought about it. With my profit-sharing plan and the better medical you have, and I was no, I know the owner and I know where the company is going, and I know you won't lay me off if things slow down. Right, and they'll they'll lay me off in a second. And I said, so I'm staying here, and I I, I tell that story all the time because it made me feel so good about somebody appreciating the long-term value that companies that people bring to companies. Sure. That's uh, that that speaks volumes, doesn't it? Oh, it really Because people always vote with their feet. Yeah. They vote with, hey, I, I got to move on. You know, and if exactly. you've seen a lot of churn, that tells you something. There's the other side of the coin for me, which is, gosh, these people are so nice. They got a bunch of people not creating value, taking advantage. You, you know, it's a country club. <laughs> and then you can't make any money. Clearly, you guys are profitable. How do you balance the we want to be kind, gracious, and good to our people, treat them fairly, and we've got to drive and grow and, and, and keep evolving for tomorrow? You have to constantly prop that up. You have to constantly remind everybody. And it's good supervision. Uh, I think we have a fine supervision a supervising crew in this company. Okay. They uh, are constantly in touch with the people. We have a lot, we're a job shop. We okay. have, we may cut two gaskets for a company or we may cut a million. Okay. So, and we have a lot of different pieces of equipment, a lot of operators. It's constantly telling them, you know, what's going on and what's, what's happening and sure. uh, get the buy-in. We're a service company and people understand that 40% of the business that we get today will ship tomorrow. Wow. wow. So it's, that's, that's the kind of service you have to run here. So it's a pretty busy place. I'll see. But, you know, people do get a little stagnant about things, and they, they, they need proper reinforcement. One of the things that we do here, in this, we have free coffee and donuts every Friday morning. Okay. I should have uh, scheduled this for Friday morning. Is that, yeah, no, no, actually, you gave me a free coffee. <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> that was out of my pocket. My father always thinks it's free. Yeah. But I said, true. it's not free to you and I. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's just, and, and shake, whenever I see anybody, when I walk through the shop, I try to walk through our shops once a week. Okay. Shake everybody's hand. Okay. 
and make sure they understand that my doors are always open. We, you know, whatever you need, and they ask questions. It's amazing how uh, people don't know a lot about what's going on and what they have to do. And we have a beautiful profit sharing and pension plan. Sir, okay. we we pay eighteen percent of your gross wages mm. in pension and profit sharing money. Wow. And we take 25% of our pre-tax profit mm -hmm. to pay that. So it's an incentive-based program, but the awards are excellent. Yeah. And we have people that, and we invest the money. We have people that after 10 years make more money in their profit sharing and their investments than they do working. That's great. <laughs> so yeah. we've had people in our shop retire with a half a million dollars in their plan, retire at 65. And, you know, you got to plan to live to 100 yeah. Or 105 or something. You got to have money to do that. Yeah, it's what a what an amazing story. And this is, I think, something that a lot of folks um, don't know happens anymore. So we, right. we're all used to these. You know, I come from Rochester, so Kodak is the big name. Yeah. Oh, you know, back in the day, if you worked at Kodak, you were set. There was yeah. the Kodak bonus. I mean, the Rochester economy exploded. Oh, People were buying exploded. Cadillacs cash <laughs> when it was bonus time. Uh, you know, great pension, now all that's gone. And so what you hear, I think, in the national news, you hear people talk about is, oh, those days are gone. And I think they are on, on the big company level. Big company level. But there are companies like yours, and, and, and your company is atypical. I'm not saying every private business is just lavishing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you've got a, a set of priorities ordered in such a way that you're able to take care of your people. The fact that a line worker can retire with half a million. Absolutely. And and if they've been good on their end too, yep. and invest a little bit, yeah, they can actually have a good retirement, a yeah. secure retirement. That's unheard of. It really is. There, uh, my father set that plan up in 1968. Okay. Uh, there was a, and there still is a very successful company in Cleveland called Lincoln Electric. Okay. And they always had this profit sharing plan and they'd have people lined up Whenever their business got better, people were lined up down the street to get a job there because they took care of their employees. And they had a cyclical business, so they had some people that would, you know, they try to keep them on during that time. And it, it was just a fantastic place to work. Hmm. So we set that up. You cannot, incidentally, you cannot set up a plan like that today. The IRS will not allow that. So you're grandfathered in. Yeah. I mean, that, you just could not set that today. What, what about it, uh, not to get into too many details, but w what about it doesn't allow you to set it up? I know like when I ran my business, uh, you know, even with the 401k, like I had to convince, I had to have enough percentage of people invested in it so that I could participate. Yeah. It was always audited and all that. But That's always audited, yeah. But what, what about the plan today makes it hard to set up? Well, I think it's because of the payout. Okay. And uh, you don't, you know, the, uh, the money that goes in is not taxed. Right, right. So that they don't like uh, that, and they don't take the tax on until the people get out of the plan. Like a four, similar to four hundred one k. So gross tax free. Yeah, but we contribute you know, maximum we can have tax free by the government. I think it's twenty five percent. Okay. So we we contribute eighteen, mm -hmm. and we also have a four hundred one k, so that people contribute more into that if nice. they want to. Nice. But they got to stay under the twenty five percent. Sure. You know so. 
My guest today is Terry Galanis Jr. He's the president and CEO of Ceiling Devices. Uh, we're going to be back in just a moment, but before we take a break, I want to encourage you to check out their company. You can go to their website, learn more about them. The company's website is ceilingdevices.com. I'm going to spell that because it's not ceiling as in the roof over your head. Uh, it's S-E-A-L-I-N-G-D-E-V-I-C-E-S.com. Uh, we'll be right back after this brief message. Folks, I hope you're enjoying today's show. I have one question for you. Are you interested in the story of private industry in America? Do you care about private business? Do you care about entrepreneurship and wealth creation and even a little bit of marketing and branding? If so, do yourself a favor and sign up for my newsletter. That's right. I've got a free newsletter that goes out once a week. You can go over to my website. It's MikeGaston.com, M-I-K-E-G-A-S-T-I-N.com. Just shoot to the bottom of the page, the homepage there, and you'll see a form. All you have to do is put in your first name and your email address. I will never spam you. I will never sell your information. But what I will do once a week, I will send you an email that updates you on the content that I'm creating. I've got some great stuff in store. I'm working on some video essays that I'm really excited about. I'll keep you up to date on things like podcast episodes and articles that I'm putting out and even speaking engagements that I've got coming up. So if you're into anything that has to do with private business in America, I would highly suggest, highly recommend you get over to my website, get signed up, get in the system and be kept abreast of the latest content coming out from yours truly. Now, guys, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. We're with Terry Galanis Jr. He is the president and CEO of Ceiling Devices. Terry, welcome back to The Currency. Thank you. Yeah, this is a great discussion. Um, I want to pick up just with this question. Uh, uh, what's it like having worked your practically your whole career with your father being in a family business? Because yes. I think that can go one of two ways. Yeah. How's that been? My father and I get along fabulously. And I think it's because the first two years in business... I watched my father as a high school junior and senior come home, eat dinner, and go back to work mm. until 11 o'clock at night for basically two years wow. just to build the business. I got so much respect for him for doing that. And my father is, is a great father to my sisters and I. I mean, he was perfect. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better father. Mm. Back uh, when we moved to Chicago— uh, my father used to travel five days a week, come home, and he would. Uh, we had a a paper route. I had the Chicago Tribune, <laughs> which was about four inches thick. The Sunday Tribune. Oh my goodness! I think I got eight cents a paper for delivering it. Wow! And uh, there were probably a hundred people. And my father would get up every Sunday with me at six o'clock, put that paper together, and then we went out and delivered all those papers. I mean. I had so much respect for whatever he did. And so it was easy for me to see what he had sacrificed to get the business going. Mm -hmm. And I never, I never would have an argument with him. Mm. And I really never disagreed with anything he did. And he was a good, open-minded person. Uh, as we got in business together, we would get situations where we'd have to make a decision. And some things that he would think were right I would think we're wrong. Okay. 
And I would just say, did you think about this? Did you think about that? You know, do you want to hire a guy that's 62 uh, who may not want to work too much? And what if you have to lay him off for at 62, he has no job? You know, let's, so let's not put ourselves in a position where we may uh, hurt somebody. Sure. By letting them go or something, or you know, but we never had an argument. Never went home mad. Sure. You know? Did you have like an agreement, like, hey, um, we can hash things out? But at the end, I'm like, how, how did you handle? Of course, it sounds like you just would defer to him. I was going to ask, how yeah. do you handle disagreements? But it sounds like, hey, Dad, you're. I've watched what you've put into this business. I respect you. I'm going to ask some questions, but ultimately, I'm going to respect your decision. Never had that situation. Yeah, we okay. always did what was best. It didn't matter whose idea it was. Sure. And we'd say, oh, I never thought of that okay. <laughs> or this and that. So you worked like a team more, more oh, or less. Yeah. Oh, how, yeah. How was it when you guys switched roles, meaning so you came into the business, that, you know, you talked about, um, you know, before we got into the interview, yeah. you did mention in the interview that, that uh, you had to go to Sears and Roebuck to get the shelves. Sure. You were 16 years old, so you helped, you know, put those up when the company started. You went off to college. When you joined the company, you didn't join as president on day one. No. But where I'm going with this is to say, what was it like when you switched roles, when you took over the helm, but your dad was still working in the business? It was very interesting. Uh, my wife and I had moved to Syracuse in 1973. Okay. And we started the office there and everything. Uh, we had no children. We were married for about five years before we had our daughter. Were we in a recession then, 70s? I think I remember like well, oil embargo and all the, that. The, yeah, yeah the gas crisis. You know, you Even would, an odd license plate yeah, number is what day you could fill up the car. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I was a salesman, you know. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we had uh, my first daughter was born there. Okay. And uh, I had noticed the company had reached about $3 million in sales. And we had some home video of my father coming up for the christening and everything else. He looked white as a sheet. Really? Yeah, I noticed that. And he was the sales manager, the human resource manager, the accounting manager. He was everything. My father used to call that chief cook and bottle washer. Absolutely. Doing it all, yeah. And he called me up and he wanted me to come back to Buffalo because we were building our first headquarters building here. He wanted to do that. Okay. But when I got here... He went into a depression. Hmm. Age 59, mm -hmm. he didn't want to know anything. Um, it was very hard for me to watch him go through that. I just took over the things that he wasn't able to do. And he would come in and he had, he would come in some days and just sit at his desk and read magazines. He was so frustrated oh. with his own inability, I think, to control his emotions. So I took it over, and I kept him informed of everything I was going to do. And at that time, it was able to reorganize the company to make it more efficient, get an inside sales manager, get an outside sales manager, you know, start the human resource. It was things that I was able to do easier than he could at the right. time. And he just said, do whatever you want. Did, did he, was he burned out? Was it just that he, he was had taken on out. so much that he burned out? He was burned out, and he was depressed. We had at that time on our, our board of directors an industrial psychologist okay. who was a personal friend. Sure. He used to test everybody we would hire. And it was kind of interesting because we'd interview somebody, and this, this guy is really good, and, everything, and uh, we'd send him to the, our industrial psychologist, and he would say, 
where did you get this guy? He's no good. <laughs> <laughs> and incidentally, I had to go through that testing. Okay. And uh, fortunately, I made it through. You passed, okay. yeah. yeah. right. But, uh, you know, that was a very tough time for my dad. Sure. And when he made me president when he was 65, he snapped right out of the Depression. Interesting. It was amazing how back he rebounded, how fast he rebounded from that situation. Hmm. He used to take Valium. The doctor prescribed Valium for him, and he just sometimes just, we got him a recliner chair for his office, and he would just sit there and take a nap. He just didn't didn't seem to want to do anything. And, and you know, relatively speaking, he was young. Yes. He was in his late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. I mean, this is not like, well... You know, he's 82 and he's starting to struggle cognitively. No. The young guy, for all yeah. intents and purposes. That must have been hard to see. It was hard Watching to watch. your father be such a strong man, such an right. innovative, hardworking, yeah. entrepreneurial guy to get into that kind of a funk. How did the employees react to that? Because that must have been hard for them, too. Uh, you know, it's funny because we kept doing all the things. We were a lot smaller then. We had very good relationship with people. I hope I was as nice as my father was to everybody, <laughs> is to everybody. And uh, we brought people in, younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was amazing, but it still was good. We were, we were constantly growing the business. Okay. You know, keep, we never lost sight of the need to keep bringing new stuff into sure. the company, you know. Well, it almost sounds in some ways like the crisis of your father hitting the wall a little bit, like yes. he's doing everything. Exactly. Hits the wall. Uh, I don't want to play Dr. Phil, so I'm not yeah. going to. But yeah. but it forced um, the company, you, to think of how can we set up process, people, yeah. systems, so that the, the owner doesn't have to do everything. And yeah. by doing that, now you can scale. Like the benefit of that is now we can well, get yeah. even bigger versus yeah. we're just taking the pressure off. So. In a way, did it set you up for the growth that you've been experiencing over the last 20 years? I think, unfortunately, he had to go through that yeah. to, to rust. You know, it's funny because my father and mother never took a vacation uh, until I moved back from Syracuse to Buffalo. Then he finally took a two-week vacation. The first and he was time. so happy that business was still intact when they came back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, but, you know, the trouble is, uh, I think anybody... If you're, and I was always a good, respectable person. I mean, I treated everybody just like my father did. That's where you were raised, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was not, and I also, uh, when I was going to college, when I'd come home for Christmas break, I always worked in the shop. I, you know, the guys in the shop were friends of mine. Uh, you know, we cut gaskets together, we did stuff. We played cards together, okay. you know, we had a baseball team. We had a lot of things, and, you know, people could, just be very comfortable around us. Okay. You know? Well, you mentioned earlier this uh, kind of attitude of, you know, nothing's below right. yeah. anybody here. It's like, hey, if this needs doing, I don't, yeah. I'm not too good to do it. I mean, yeah. your dad was selling out of a yeah. car. He was a traveling salesman yeah. to make a living. So yeah. he, 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 it's not like uh, your family came from tons of money and was just fat and happy from day one. No. You, you worked for it. We had uh, one of the interesting things is we we had some of the gasket materials contained asbestos. Okay. And we had a customer that, uh, as we were phasing out asbestos, had some asbestos millboard, which was a little fri- different. Most of our asbestos was encapsulated in rubber. Okay. So it wasn't a problem. Okay. 
But we had one product that we saw was this asbestos millboard, which created some fibers. Mm. And we had a desperate situation where this guy needed some of this stuff, and we didn't want our people to cut it. So, of course, I knew how to run the machines. <laughs> so I came in on a Saturday, and I ran that job for, you know, to get it out and get it away from us. And so I took the risk, which it wasn't a risk, but, mm. you know, I never smoked or drank or anything else like that. That <laughs> it became figure, a problem. You make a little withdrawal from the bank, as yeah. it were. Terry, as I'm thinking about this business, it's an amazing story, and there's been some ups and downs. You know, outside of the situation where your dad was struggling and, and yeah. uh, through that period of time, which um, which I know happens to a lot of owners, what has been your biggest challenge uh, or maybe the business's biggest challenge under your helm? What's the toughest thing you guys have faced? That's a good question. Uh, running a business like we do... Uh, a small business it, by today's standards, you know. Sure. Uh, we hope to reach $100 million maybe in two years or okay. so. Okay, fantastic. Um, I was fortunate that I had a very good management team to work with. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember any real big struggles. Um, we were, we were uh, always growing. We didn't have it. It was struggles. There was everyday struggles. People were always a, people are always a you know a difficult situation sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but I never really had anything I couldn't handle. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's. It was just the business fit me right at the right time. Okay, so then if that that's that's fantastic. I guess my follow up question then is. What do you attribute that to? So you're saying the business fit you? I, yeah. I understand it, I think. But what do you attribute this this run of... And I know it's not been all uh, tulips and right. blue yeah. skies, but just what do you attribute this run of success over the decades to, if you boil it down to one thing? I mean, there, are, there, are a couple, there are a couple of instances that I remember specifically okay. that really changed the way I thought about things. Uh, one year we had a, uh, a number of, uh, a certain product come in for the Canadian forces and they were the mechanical seals and they, on a Friday night, they had spilled all over the dock at the trucking company. <laughs> so the purchasing guy came in and told me about it and I said, okay, let's go down and do it. He said, oh, it's not your problem. It's our problem. We'll take care of it. You don't have to worry about it. So, of course, I, okay, people like responsibility. People like to be, to take their own actions on stuff and get stuff. So I learned a lot about what people want. They want a responsibility. They want to be respected. They want to be able to take care of sure. situations like that, which I don't think we always helped in situations like that, but I don't think we needed to. I think people needed to be in charge. And they they respected that we would let them in charge, and that's part of letting go. So it sounds like that. Just to interject, when I think about the relationship you've had with your father, yeah. So I, I've talked to other folks. I've you know I worked with my dad for a while. You know you can have not that my father was this way, but well I'm the I'm the boss. You're the kid. Yeah. I'm running the business, and someday it'll be your turn, and you're <laughs> waiting. You know I can't wait till the old man lets me do my yeah. thing. It sounds like you guys work together, father and son, like a team. Oh, absolutely. And so what I'm hearing is your father, even though he was the big cheese, was still 
treating his son like an equal in the sense that you're my family, you matter, I want to give you responsibility. He wasn't just keeping you in the wings waiting. I hear you saying the same thing about your employees. I want to make sure that they've got the ability to take on responsibility and prove to themselves what they can do and solve problems. How do you get that down into your business? It's one thing to say, hey, father and son. Yeah. But with 200 people, you can have all kinds of different attitudes and cultures. How do you get a team this big that has that sense of ownership and freedom? It's all about making decisions at the right level. If you, you have, first of all, you have to have trust in the people that you hire. And you got to make sure you hire the right people. At that point, you let them operate the way they feel it should be operate, the way the company should operate. Yeah. And if there's any question, my door is always open. You let me know what you think. Sure. Um, I had a situation once where I was at a table of about 10 people. We had an automotive situation, and the contract came up. And we had two big products. One product we were making a lot of money on, and the other we were losing our shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so all these people, the salesmen, they, they were sitting at the table. And I said, uh, okay, so what are we going to do? Nobody said anything. So I made the decision that we should lower the price on the high margin item and raise the price on the lower margin item. Which, okay. You know, okay. Well, that didn't work out well because they accepted the price decrease <laughs> on the higher margin item, and didn't let us raise the price on the other thing. Yeah. So I said to myself, and here I'm sitting at a table with 10 people. That's the last time I'm ever going to make this decision knowing the least about the situation. Yeah, you guys are feet on the street. You know. You tell me what is the best situation, and we'll go from there. Yeah. So I will never make a decision like that ever again. Fortunately, I was back in the 80s, and I haven't had that situation again. Interesting. But I tell people, you know, this is your job, and nobody's going to stand over you. You've got to produce, and, you know, that's it. What happens if somebody makes a decision and it blows up in their face? How do you treat them? Because that's the other side of the coin. You can tell me, hey, Mike, we want you to make a decision. Okay, thank you, Terry. And then I I mess up. And now if you whack me over the knuckles, I'm like, well, I'm never going to. Well, put my neck out again. You're talking about me, maybe that I made those. Well, big in decisions. that instance, <laughs> but when you've got all these employees and you're encouraging yeah. them, how do you? Because people, we make all of us make mistakes. Stand by them. You know, you got to be right 85 percent of the time. You're going to make mistakes. I have made mistakes. Sure. Of course, nobody said to me anything about it. Sure. But you know, I I uh, in the last year, I tried to hire a president from outside. Okay. Because I didn't feel that our next upcoming management was ready. Okay. I hired this guy who I'd known for five years, had a great reputation, went to the Wharton School of Finance. Good school? Yeah, great credentials. He had grown a company down the street from $27 million to $97 million in five years. Okay. That's the kind of guy I want. Yeah. I brought him in here. In one month, everybody hated him. Yeah. Everybody hated him. Yeah. And so they all came to me, and I said, well, obviously you're going to do something. So I said, well, maybe he has to go. Well, then I didn't let him go. I said, I'm going to give him another chance. So I wrote a memo out to all the supervisors, and I said, we put too much time and effort hiring him. I don't want to let him go yet. 
and they respected that. Four months later, I had to let them go. Okay. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, but what happened in the interim, everybody stepped up. Everybody stepped up and took over. And it was amazing how mature everybody mm. became. Mm. And now I sit back and considering the growth we're doing, the best thing I could have done was probably do that. Mm. But, you know, it was a mistake. Sure. It's a mistake. Yeah, and these yeah. happen. And, and often when the leader makes a mistake, it's very public. Oh, yeah. You know, so I, I remember hiring a kid out of college, designer, um, you know, a print job. She, she'd lay, lay out the files, you know, the colors. It goes to the printer. And she'd messed up one of the files. So yeah. the print job came out. Customer got it and said, well, these colors are wrong. Yeah. Well, this poor kid. I mean, you know, it's going to cost the company 2500 bucks, 1000 I can't remember how much the print one run was for. But she came to me and she was terrified. Like, you know, in her yeah. mind, I've just, yeah. I'm going to get fired. And I said to her, look, absolutely not. You know, when you come out of college, you've got a credential, but this is our investment in you. Yeah. Now, if I keep getting print jobs coming back, <laughs> we're going to have a different discussion. Yeah. But I, I know something about you. I know that that, like, yeah. you've learned something every print job for the rest of your career, no matter who you work for, you're always going to check it three times. Yeah. So I said, you know what? You're a good employee. You're a hard worker. And yeah. I think sometimes people, you know, like when the owner makes a mistake, it's a huge public. But, but people, people make mistakes. And you know what? It's not that they're trying their, that they're not trying their best to do the right, right thing. Right. And they're good people and everything. We're allowed to make mistakes. Exactly. So I just tell them, don't worry about it. Yeah. Fortunately, most of the stuff that we do is, is short run items. They're not too expensive to do the wrong material or do Fix stuff like that. that. Yeah. That's normal. Yeah. And we're only human. And customers aren't going to fire you because something, you know, no. oh, it got mixed up with. They really want to know how do you solve the problem. Right. That's what people tend to care yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. I, I know there's a problem, but how do you yeah. take care and of it? Yeah, and how do you make sure it doesn't happen again? Yeah, exactly. That's you know? right. That's, That's right. That's exactly. But, uh, you know, I have, uh, we've been very fortunate and been understanding. Mm -hmm. We never talk anybody down. If somebody has a problem, you come and talk about sure. it. And I've always said, if you're not sure of a decision, we'll make it together. Yeah. And, you know. Come uh, to me and we can talk. Yeah. What um, What are you most proud of? I asked what, what was the biggest challenge. What are you most proud of uh, during your tenure of running the company here at Sealing? I think I'm, I'm proud of the growth. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of the people that I put together that work together with us. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of the relationship we have, our management team, and every, with everybody in the, in the company. Sure. Um, there's there's a lot to be said for the reputation of the company, the ethical reputation of the company, mm -hmm. how we are treated by our suppliers. Uh, Parker Hennepin says there's no other company in the world like sealing devices. Really? Uh, and, I, you know, I think the most part about it, I've listened to people. Uh, we do formed-in-place gasketing, robotic dispensing of gasketing. And I never wanted to turn down an idea that somebody came in and said, we have an opportunity. I always learned from my father when we were always getting started, we get an opportunity for a big order. We have to buy a machine to do it. Right. And we, my father used to say, damn the torpedoes, buy the full, machine. Full speed ahead, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And we'd buy the machine. And there wouldn't be any question about whether it was the right thing to do or not. Yeah. You know? But we had the opportunity. The window of opportunity 
very small hmm. sometimes, and you have to act. And I didn't want a big bureaucracy to sure. hold that uh, decision process out. Have you ever gotten burned jumping through that window? Because you're kind of stepping out of the boat to walk on water when you do that a little bit. Oh, sure. Bit. Oh, sure. Yeah. Not, not a question about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you depend on the team to say, hey, we got a little bit of a mess to clean up. Uh, yeah, we, we, we've, uh, we, we always get burned a little bit. But, sure. uh, you know, sometimes our, suppl- our customers will put us in a position to get burned. Sure. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we have to eat some of that stuff. But that's, you know, a reputation is too important. Yeah. And I think the willingness to take advantage of an opportunity, you know, part of the cost is it's a little risky. And sure. And you have to be, you know, you can't be reckless. But on the other hand, like I know for us, if a client would come to us, we wouldn't take something on if we couldn't do it because we don't want to hurt the client and their business. Right. Absolutely. But we do it if we say, hey, you know, we've never done this before, but we we can figure we know how Absolutely. to figure it out. Mm-hmm. We, we got it. Yeah. And yeah. It's all it's all about. You know, capabilities. And every time we take a chance like that, we do increase the capabilities. And you're betting on your people. Yeah. Saying, I've got the team to do this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They can figure and it they, out. And they, they come through, you know. So, Terry, kind of a closing question. What's the what's the future of ceiling devices? You made the comment you'd love to get to $100 million. <laughs> yeah. You're in the high 70s right now. Yeah. What's the future? I, it's growth. It's w- yeah. what's on the board? Well, I'm 72 years old. Okay. And I had a daughter who was my C student. Okay. I was a C student. Those are those make yeah. great entrepreneurs, don't they? <laughs> As we say at uh, the university where I'm a trustee on, the A and B students, the A students we make professors, the B students become judges, and we get our money from the C and D students. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is an Ivy League college, too. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. So <laughs> That's great. I have to laugh because I fall into one. But my two older, I have three daughters. My two older daughters were very smart. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is an entrepreneur. She has a gym. One is a school teacher. She teaches at the high school she graduated. But my third one was like my son. You know, uh, we would always go to sporting goods stores while my my wife and two daughters went to the good for shops and dresses and stuff. So uh, she is the common sense kid. Okay. She's worked here 10 years. Okay. And I always, she always, I made her go out five years to get some experience. And she's a dynamic salesman. She's bright, articulate, driven, and very responsible. Hmm. And unfortunately for her, well, 10 years she was working here, the her previous uh, superiors held her back mm-hmm. and didn't let her really do what she wanted to do. Really? Here and at this company? At, at right Ceiling. here at this company, wow, okay. yeah. And I didn't, I didn't do anything for her because she said, Dad, why aren't you helping me? And I said, listen, you have to do it yourself. I did it myself. Nobody helped me. Yeah. You have to do it. You have to gain the respect from people. Sure. Well, she fought her way through that and made her own name. She uh, would travel more than anybody else, went to California and established a lot of business out there for us in electronics business. Mm. Uh, And she started to gain her own following of younger people here. Yeah, okay. So they trusted her. And when we let the guy that I came in to be president, I was able to move people up we had some retirees okay and so the our ceo retired 
uh, our uh, financial CFO, she retired. Our operations guys retired. So I was able to look at these guys coming up. Shuffle the board a little bit. Yeah, and our human resource manager, she worked this team of younger managers privately on herself and tried to build a camaraderie with them. Fortunately, they gelled. They did uh, they did assessments of each other. They knew the strengths and weaknesses that they had. Yep. And they've, they're a fine group now, and they've been operating the last year together. Hmm. We've had tremendous growth. We have all kinds of different things going on. They're working with people their own age. Yeah. They're not working with guys that are 60 and 70 like myself. <laughs> right. They're working They're a cohort, with, yeah. Yeah, and they're, they know the technology. They know what they want. They're... they're my job is to stay off of them and let them proceed, just coach them a little bit on mm-hmm. certain things. And uh, they're doing a fabulous job, really are. So for our family, keeping our business privately held, I have a person there who's 40 years old who now can take the business to a much higher level than I could. Hmm. You know, uh, And you have to know when to back off. And you have to know when... These people are smarter than you are. Hmm. But I still maintain my camaraderie with them, and they still ask me questions all the time, but I don't make the decisions anymore. Hmm. What an amazing uh, heritage to have three generations under one roof, yeah. working together like a family, but Absolutely. also professionals, confiding each other, trusting each other, oh, supporting yeah. each other. That's a, yeah. that's a testimony to... Uh, to something special that's going on here in this business. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I watched, the last year I watched, especially her and her counterparts, how they have done better than we've ever done. Mm. They've been more intense on the business. They have they have a, what do I call it, more of a, a driven... I don't know even how you say it, but they're they're looking at more things than we ever looked at for profitability. Hmm. Uh, they're smarter. <laughs> they have more technology. I think we have grown to a point where we have an excellent. You know, as as our company grew, we we became we would have an engineering department, human resource department, you know, marketing department, stuff like that all new things to us that helped us grow through our sure. life cycle. Sure. And now we have good leaders in each of those positions, so we keep adding to that. So it's good. Yeah. My guest today has been Terry Galanis, Jr. He's the president CEO of Ceiling Devices. Terry, thank you so much for sharing your story today with me and my audience. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure working with you today. Oh, it's been Great. fantastic. Thank you, guys. If you haven't already, please do me a favor. Check out Terry's company. Um, what a special story. Good group of people. You can go to ceilingdevices.com. That's S-E-A-L-I-N-G-D-E-V-I-C-E-S.com. And uh, take a look. There's a really lovely history. And uh, you can check that out and see a little bit about what they're doing. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can find it on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I, I love to connect with you guys. It's always fun when the audience gets in touch. Just look for my guest and send me a note, and I'd be happy to make your acquaintance, guys. I love you.
love you all, and I will catch you in the next episode. Thank you.